T minus 10, 9. You're listening to the Launchpad Podcast with J Man. Brought to you by Galant Media. Here's your host, Ignition J Man. All right. So I will introduce you as uh, so hockey historian. Yeah, anything okay. you want. Radio, <laughs> porn star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> One <of> my occupations. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. I'm leaving that in. That's staying. Uh, but yes, Lee McGuire. He has a restaurant named after him. He's a hockey historian, a former radio host as well. And this guy knows absolutely everything when it comes to hockey. Thank you so much for joining me right here on the Launchpad Podcast. Jason, great to be with you, buddy. We've uh, communicated back and forth a bunch of times, so good to finally be with you. We're finally going to make this happen. Now, as I was saying right before we started recording, I came across you, I believe, at an event. It may have been through when you were working in sports radio, Mm -hmm. but you have this bizarre ability to retain stats. Now, is this just a hockey thing, or are you the type of person that remembers phone numbers from when you were 12 years old? I'm really good with girls' phone numbers. Yeah, <laughs> I know where this interview is going. <laughs> you know, not kidding. Uh, um, I remember her phone number and license plate number of a girl I dated in 1979. That's 41 years ago. And um, uh, believe me, I'm not a stalker. <laughs> I was going there next. I remember the phone number of the girl I dated in college just a few years after that. And I, I, I seem, Jason, to have an ability to burn a number in if I want to burn it in. Right. I, you know, I seem to have that ability. I'm pretty good with names, too. I have a huge passion for it. I, I am blessed. I inherited a great memory on both sides of my family. My mother's family is renowned for their memory. And my late father, uh, born and raised in Dublin, Ireland, was an absolutely brilliant man. And, uh, and their family is, is known for a pretty good memory as well. I got the best of both of that, plus the passion for the sport, loving it and regurgitating it. And uh, yeah, I've been lucky over all these years that it's, I think, been able to provide a little bit of entertainment for a lot of people. Right. So this has basically been your life being a hockey historian. Do you ever get tired of hockey or talking hockey? Is there ever a time where you just want to turn it off? You're like, listen, this is going off for today. When I was married, <laughs> you were there. <laughs> um, I get along great with my ex. We're, we're split 13 years. Uh, I still love her. She's a fantastic lady. But out of all the times in my life, it was only her, and she only did it a few times early on till she till I, I basically said to her the fourth or fifth time we were out publicly, because I go out a lot, and she said, uh, I, how do you, like, these people bother you all the time. You can't go anywhere. Without somebody wanting to talk hockey or ask you a question or something. And I said, Liz, if they're going to take 30 seconds out of their day to, to come to me, then I owe them 45 seconds back. That's the way it's always been. I, I've, ne- I've never had a problem with it. Uh, you know, I mean, social media is a different animal. You get on there and it's just some people are such idiots and they don't really want to talk about history 
or about trivia or about a great play, great player, great game, great moment. It's, it's condescending or negative or what have you. And we've all experienced that. Anybody who's been on social media knows it has opened up a window to every two-bit, two-cell, gerbil-brained idiot to, to give them a platform to communicate. Whereas before, and I say this all the time, if you turn the clock back 30 years, 40 years or before, if you were lucky, you had a radio station in town that maybe had a talk show that maybe once in a blue moon might talk sports and you could phone in. Your only other public opportunity was to write a letter to the editor of your local paper and hope it got published. Otherwise, you went to your local bar or the hockey rink where you played or whatever, or a house party with the 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 people you were with. And that was the extent of how you could get your asinine comment out there. And now everybody can post one in, in, in two seconds. So, but in terms of people coming up to me, I've never had a problem with that. First of all, 99.9% that have come up to me over the 39 years I've been doing this, Jason, have, uh, have, have never, you know, come up to me to, to confront me about anything other than, Hey, listen, I, I'd like to ask you something by all means. Go ahead. Right. Okay. I just want you to know, don't worry about filtering yourself. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You're going to tell it like it is. And I, I love that. I absolutely love that. Now you talked about a hockey memory and that wasn't something that I was going to ask, but what would be your favorite hockey memory of all time? Easy, easy. Thursday afternoon, September 28th, 2.30 PM, 1972, Paul Henderson. Right. Uh, I was 13 years old. That's a seminal age. It is in the Jewish faith. I'm not Jewish, but it is for all of the rest of us. You know, anybody, you know, you think about it. You've just, you've just become a teenager. It's, it's a seminal age. Right? Back in the day, no matter how far back you go, 13 is a big, big age. I was 13. 1972, the world was different. And that month that that series took 10 million Canadians and I don't know how many, 14, 15 million Russians or more, and, and the rest of the hockey world on over the, the 28 days in September was uh, there's never been anything like it. Nothing will ever rival it. Nothing can rival it. And that's my number one by far hockey moment in my life when, when Henderson scored that goal. We still had 34 seconds to play. Those two officials were so, so shocked that, that we had gone in the league that they blew an obvious icing. Canada should have been called for icing with 12 seconds to go. Wouldn't have mattered because the Russians never pulled their goalie anyway. Mm-hmm. They didn't start pulling their goalie until like the 1980s. They wouldn't even use a power play. They would just roll the lines. You know, yeah. unbelievable. Anyway, that's a whole other story. That's, yeah. that's my <laughs> favorite moment by far. That'll be part two of this podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to throw some names at you right now. Uh, some players that used to play. And I either want a really cool stat or something that maybe people wouldn't know about that player. Okay. Uh, Yarmer Yager. Well, <laughs> you know, Yager is part of that uh, pretty special 1990 draft. And he won those cups in 91 and 92. And I think it surprises a lot of people when you tell them that he was a third liner on that Stanley Cup in 1991. He was playing on the right side with Brian Trotche. And, you know, uh, good thing he had trots at that time. I mean, that was a Mario show, as we all know. And you had an up-and-comer like Jagger, who's an automatic Hall of Famer, as we all know. But I think coming out of the gate, he really had an interesting career. 
A lot of people don't know that he played for nine NHL teams. I mean, he was a human bouncing rubber ball there the last four or five years as he was trying to prolong. He's not the first, and he won't be the last, to try and break some of the records. In his case, Gordie Howe's games played record. That's the one he was going for. Right. And Chris Chelios went for it. You know, there's other guys that have – Tim Horton back in the day, he got killed. But other guys have tried to take a run at it. And uh, I remember that about Jagger. Um, he got a very good friend of mine fired in Washington, who's now the head coach of the Boston Bruins, Bruce Cassidy. The only reason he lost his job in Washington is that's when Jagger was the biggest suck on the planet. You know, his model girlfriend had broke up with him. He was pulling a suck fit every day. Butch wanted him to just go and shoot one-timers on the power play where Brad Hull did, and Jagger didn't want to line up over there. Okay. And, and, uh, and then, you know, he goes to the Rangers where he lit it up and set, sets their single-season goal record. He breaks Adam Graves' record. Adam Graves broke Vic Hadfield's record and so on. And then, uh, and then Jagger goes overseas. He comes back and he bounces around. But uh, much respect, Hall of Famer, hell of a right winger, one of the greatest of all time, no question. Well, I'll tell you what, I would never have him on my team, ever. Right. Okay. So you have so much information. It's, it's ridiculous. Adam Gray is number nine. Love that guy uh, when he played with the Rangers. Okay. So let's, let's try to – I'm going to tighten this up a little bit. So Brett Hall, 10, 15 seconds. <laughs> Give me some good stuff that I might know or might not know about Brett Hall in 10 to 15 seconds. Well, his very first shift in hockey, he hit the crossbar. He, 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 uh, his first game was a member of the Calgary Flames in the finals against Montreal Canadiens in 1986. He came down, hit the crossbar, was his first ever shot on net. And, of course, involved in that big trade to St. Louis. Um, I mean, father and son, right? You go Brett, you go Bobby, then that brings in Dennis. They had a brother. You know, he had brothers that played pro. Uh, they had another brother, that uh, Bobby and Dennis. He had another uncle, Gary, who played in the WHA. I mean, what more can you say? He's one of the few guys that have over 700 goals in the NHL. Again, he's a guy you want right. quite a bit about. But University of Minnesota, and he played with my good friend Wayne Smith. Right. Now, if he didn't have number 12 on his team, Adam Oates, do you think that he would have sniped as many goals as he did? Or do you think he was an absolutely integral part of making that happen? You know, you need a passer, but you need a shooter. Yeah. And I think some they would have found somebody to be able to get him the puck. He was that good. I mean, he had three straight 70-goal seasons. And, yeah, he had great centers, but you know you could say that really about anybody, other, with the exception of Wayne, because Wayne's in a different a different snack bracket than all those guys right. offensively. But uh, Brett Brett was pure snipe, man, pure okay. snipe. Uh, let's bring it to somebody new, uh, Austin Matthews. I am rarely impressed with you know the hot new thing that's going to be coming into the league because so often they don't necessarily pan out and live up to full potential where would you rate Austin Matthews right now in regards to where he is as a hockey player for as many years as he's been in the league well call the trophy winner 1917 and he probably could have won it after that first game against Ottawa (laughs) (laughs) the four goals I mean he set an NHL record in his first ever game in the NHL not many guys can say they did that I mean Austin Matthews one of the best players in the league yeah. I mean, Dreisaitl won the heart this year, but there's no way I don't think any GM would take him over Austin Matthews. Connor McDavid's first, probably Nathan McKinnon second. I'd have Austin Matthews right there as third or fourth best player in the league right now. What we've seen in four very quick seasons here is he's got to find a way, him and the Leafs, to get to that next level. 
And this is a really, really huge challenge for them, especially now with two fossils on the team. They think those guys playing regular are going to help them go to the next round or that Wayne Simmons has enough gas in the tank to be physical game in and game out, maybe in a shortened season. But Austin Matthews is absolutely phenomenal. I love the guy as a hockey player. Love him. Right. So obviously, like you said, Toronto has to capitalize on this talent, even though he has many, many more great years to go. But why are the Maple Leafs just generally so bad? They have so much money. The last time that I really remember the Leafs being good, not like where I'm just rooting for them to get into the playoffs and maybe they're on a little bit of a run, but we're talking about when they were spending bad money. Uh, But with good players, I mean, they had Wendell Clark, they had Dougie Gilmore, like Alan Bester and Padme, stuff like that. that. That era of hockey for the Maple Leafs. When, when they seem to have just a better roster of players, but could never seem to get it done. What's missing with that franchise? What do they need to make that team a legitimate winner? And why are they not with all the money that this team has? Well, first of all, last 15 years, you got a salary cap. So you've had to become, you've had to become cre- not, not so much creative, but you definitely have to have people at the helm who, who know what they're doing. And to be perfectly honest, I think they made a mistake bumping Lou Lamarillo, promoting Kyle Dubas, and, and kicking Hunter out of there. I think, I, think, I think Mark Hunter should have become the general manager. And, and we'll see down the road here because their window with these guys, it's still wide open, but it will close quickly. The Leafs of the late 70s were a player away. The Leafs in the early 90s were a player away. If, if you factor in that Pittsburgh won those two cups in a row – then had their best regular season, really, in 93. Mario comes back from the injury, lights it up. They finished the season on a 17-game winning streak. The last couple games, they didn't win. But just before the end of the season, they won, which is the NHL record. They broke a record that had been set by the New York Islanders at 15. And But, you know, then Mario retired and went out, and Jagger sucked and got traded, and, 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 and they, they dismantled. But the Leafs could have been right there. They were right there. And then they were there again in the late 90s and early 2000s, being a player maybe two away. If you think about it, Jason, you know, Steve Eiserman was drafted in 1973, didn't win his first cup till 97. Mm-hmm. Ovechkin's drafted 2004, didn't win a Stanley Cup till 2018. Now, you don't want to say that Austin Matthews <laughs> going – first overall in 2016 and he's got to wait 14 years to win a Stanley Cup you would hope as a, if you're a Leaf fan that that's not going to be the case but sometimes it is there's just no automatic guarantee that even if you do all the right things in terms of putting a lineup together that you're going to win got to stay right. healthy got to have the goaltending you, you have to have specialty teams like what Boston did in 2011 with no power play until the finals is extremely rare very very rare so you've got to have specialty teams goaltending you have to have a lot of factors and even if the Leafs let's say you go back and and you add in who you may pick or another Leaf fan may pick or I may pick as the final ingredient it doesn't necessarily mean that when you get to the final that you beat that team you know, look at Detroit you think they think Scotty Bowman had it all figured out when he got the Russian five and now everybody, I, I got I to jump in here and say something about this. <clears throat> it's funny. I'm not going to stop Bowman you. Scotty <laughs> goes to Detroit. Scotty okay. goes to Detroit. I got to say this. He goes to Detroit, and they put the Russian five together. 
like they're, it's like they skated across the ocean. They skated on water. Five mythical figures. You know, what happened to them in 95 final? They got waxed. Scott Stevens was using them as a squeegee, and they did nothing. What happened to them in 1996? The Winnipeg Jets beat the shit out of them physically. By the time they got to Colorado, and then Claude Lemieux put Chris Draper four rows up from behind, brutal cheap shot. By the time they go to 1997, the Red Wings come down to the standings 21 points, and they broke up that Russian five, and then they won the Stanley Cup. What was the right ingredient, Jason? You would never say in a million years that removing a guy like Dino Cicerelli. Oh, phenomenal right player. That they did. You know, right. they moved some guys out and put some guys in. And, and then they ended up, you know, I mean, look, Nick Lidstrom came to pass and, 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 uh, and you had some Swedes. I mean, Zetterberg came along and, and not discounting. In fact, the Russians played great. But right. what is the right ingredient? Look at how many different teams have won the Stanley Cup just since we lost the full season. You know, uh, 2006, Carolina, 07, Anaheim, 08, Detroit, 09, Pittsburgh, 10, Chicago, 11, Boston, 12, LA. Different teams every year. Right. Every year. What's the right ingredient? I mean, it's, it's, it's got to have almost a little bit of luck as well. But to be fair, to go back to your question, I'll wrap up on this one. <laughs> okay. Is Toronto have more often than not missed that boat entirely. They have not had that right lineup. And right now, with the configuration of how they have the payroll for those top four guys, I'm telling you, they're going to have to move Nylander in my mind. There's no doubt about it. They're going to have to move him. And having the fossils and Wayne Simmons isn't, isn't the answer either. Yeah. Well, boo Leafs anyways. <laughs> I'm an Ottawa guy because I'm an Ottawa native. I want to root for the home team. Now, Here's the crazy thing for me. You know what I mean? I'm not you <laughs> with all this knowledge in my head. I'm just a dumb fan, right? I'm one of those guys. And with the Battle of Ontario, and as much as Ottawa fans like to poop on the Toronto fans because we've had a greater level of success, I guess, we still can't get to that next level either. We've had some amazing rosters here in Ottawa throughout the years you know, where we've led the league in points, and then we just can't get it done. And when I think about the players that we've also drafted back in the day, we've had some of the top-tier draft picks. Unfortunately, some of them didn't pan out. I remember <laughs> Bonk. <laughs> that, that didn't turn out so well. Uh, what, are, what are the things that we're lacking right here in Ottawa let's say back then that would have got us to that next level. And what have we learned from our past that, that are going to, that's going to help us right now in regards to becoming one of those franchises again and competing for a Stanley cup. During the run that the senators had, when they came out of mediocrity and became, as you just correctly stated, one of the top teams in the NHL, they were a paradox because they had all the right ingredients except for one thing. They had the wrong guy behind the bench. Okay. It's a paradox because him behind the bench secured tremendous regular season success and consistency of winning. And Ottawa, having one of the smallest season ticket fan bases 
even at that time, really depended on the walk-up crowd. And you're from Ottawa, so I can say this because this will resonate a lot more with you than if I was talking to somebody else who really didn't know the region of Ottawa, Carlton. Such as it is, post-Second World War, post-1970, post-1980, we're, we're a government town. We're kind of a soft town. We're a conservative, left-wing type of town. And we're only really upset about really anything for about 48 hours. <laughs> That's true. In the spring, you've even got less time because everybody's just planning on when they're going to the cottage, right. when they're going to open up the cottage. So what you had is you had an Ottawa Senator team. You go back to your question you asked me about Toronto. In my view, a Senator team for between 1996 and about 2009, that, that 10, 12, 13-year run, one of the top teams in the league, and I believe in my heart they had all of the necessary ingredients on the ice. What they didn't have in Jacques Martin was the right coach behind the bench. Jacques Martin could go to the Prescott Hotel for Liam McGuire's and take 20 guys out of the bar and he'd get them in the playoffs. <laughs> He's that good of an X's and O's coach. coach. Right. But when you get into the playoffs, not only do your players have to understand it's a different animal, you better, you better have coaches who understand that too. Let me right, put it this way. Who do you blame though? Exchange Jacques Martin and Pat Quinn behind the bench in the early 2000s as the Leafs were, were, were doing a tap dance on the Sens there four out of five years, I believe the Ottawa Senators win at least one, if not two Stanley Cups, if they have Pat Quinn instead of Jacques Martin. Right, oh, so who do you blame them? But who do you blame then? That has to come from the top then. No, but here's why it's a paradox. It's okay. a paradox because the Sens knew, mm-hmm. and I'm going to shed a little insight for you here. The first time that I had this conversation, I didn't initiate it. What I just said to you, word for word, let's say I'm paraphrased what he basically said to me, was former president Roy Malacher. Do you remember Roy? I remember the name, but I don't remember the name. Roy Malacher was the best president probably the senators ever had, with the exception of Jim Durrell, who was right out of the gate. Right. And and with a a very close nod to to, uh, Bernie Ash, who was outstanding as well. But Roy Malacher was the president here when the Sens came of age. And I used to have, uh, I, I loved Roy. And he used to bring me into his office. Every year I would go to the rink to get my new NHL guide and record book and the media guides. And Roy would always invite me into his office. And we'd sit down. And this is when the Sens started. Like, Jason, you just said it. They started to get good. 96, they make the playoffs. 97, 98, they're winning. <clears throat> they win around, you know. 99, losing to Toronto, losing to Buffalo, whatever. 2003, you're going to the semifinals. You're winning President's Cup. These are good teams, really good teams. But Roy Malacher told me, which is why I shared it with you, Jason, is that they needed to win consistently in the regular season. They could not take the foot off the gas. If they had success in the playoffs, it was icing on the cake. Because when the crash and burn would inevitably come, as we now know in hindsight, it always did. Ottawa fans were only pissed off for a couple of days. Then it was, oh, we got to go to the cottage, you know. What time's uh, dance lessons? We are, yeah, I got to get my daughter, you know. I mean, it's, it's nobody cared. They don't, right. by and large. Yeah, a few do, but nobody really did. So you move on. 
after they lost to the Leafs in 04, when they went to the semis in 03, then they could not afford to carry Jacques anymore. His eight years had run out. He had reached the height that he could go, and then they moved on. Who'd they bring in? Brian Murray. Brian Murray was way better coach than he was a GM. He won Coach of the Year in 1984 with the Washington Capitals, and the best success the Ottawa Senators ever had in the playoffs was with Brian Murray as head coach. Why did they lose to Anaheim in 2007? One reason and one reason only. And every Senator fan hates to hear it. Alfie shot the puck at Scott Niedemeyer at the end of the second period in game four. If he doesn't do that, they won game three. They lose game one and game two. They come back, they win game three. Fantastic hockey. Fantastic hockey. They're, they're leading game four. And it's tied going into the third period. They tied it up. Anaheim went ahead and they tied it up. And then uh, Niedermeyer was all over Alfie. shoots the puck at him. Niedermeyer in the dressing room. This is all public knowledge. He told his boys, leave Alfie alone. Boys, if we win the third period, we win this game, we go up three games to one, we're winning the Stanley Cup. Right. So I don't really put that on, on Brian Murray or the coaching staff. That's just one of those things. And I could cite you a hundred of those. Oh, I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> Thank the you for granted. The Sens were close, man. They were close. But so, in their meeting, they had the wrong guy behind the bench. So what are the things that we can do right now? Like, give me the number one thing that the Ottawa Senators need to do, like yesterday, to become a contender that will get them on the road to potentially winning a Stanley Cup. Well, I'll get a new owner. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, there we go. I mean, we can just leave it at that. <laughs> that was going to be my answer, too. Well, he's, the worst owner. he's the worst owner in the history of pro sports. And uh, whether he can stay out of the way of what has potential here to be a, a massive resurgence. I mean, even, even just by happenstance, they're going to become a better team. They, they've just completed one of the most significant drafts in NHL history, at least on paper. Mm -hmm. And every scout and their brother is saying that uh, they really hit a home run with not only you know, uh, these first couple picks, the third and the fifth, but some of these other ones down the road, there are high, there'll be high expectations for as well. And some of the picks they've had just in recent years, they have got the opportunity here within 24 months, all depending on what we, you mm -hmm. know, get for hockey here, mm -hmm. pandemic not, notwithstanding. Um, they've got potential here to really be able to make some noise. But, you know, it, even look at Melnick's comments just a couple of days ago. <laughs> At first, he says, yeah, we're going to spend the cap, or whatever it was, a couple months ago. Now he says we're going to hover around $70 million. It's going to be a flat cap for at least two, if not three years, which is going to be, it looks like, probably $81 million. So that means, really, realistically, you should be spending up to $78, $79 of that. Minimum. You should be right there. You keep a couple mil. Emergencies, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Other than that, you should be spending up to it. Right away out of the gate. Just, you know, um, just this hypocritical comments from him. But right. Ottawa is is got the opportunity here over the next couple of years without ownership meddling to uh, to make some huge leaps and, and uh, some giant strides. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of these celebrity boxing matches mm -hmm. that have been happening recently on pay-per-view. Maybe we can get you and Melnick in the same ring and guys can... Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me right now? I mean, if you blinked, it would be over. I sparred over 100 rounds at Beaver Boxing. I still hit the bag four times a week. I'd go through everybody in their front office with a minute's rest in between. <laughs> okay, so, now 
let's go from the Ottawa Senators to a team that's been having a run like forever. And I'm always surprised every time that I go that there's not more people in the arena. And that would be the Ottawa 67s. Of course, there was an end of an era when Kilray retired and he was done with the franchise. But man, the players that this franchise has churned out over the decades, even for myself when I was in high school, a lot of the Ottawa 67 players would either go to Hillcrest or Canterbury High School because it was semester. So I had the opportunity to meet Weeks and McCauley and Campbell, like just an all-star cast of players. And they were something that were absolutely unreal. Maybe speak to the casual hockey fan as to why they would want to check out this franchise. This is a winning team. Well, um, as you said, when um... – when the team was, was sold and Jeff Hunt took over in 98, uh, the first thing he, he did was they changed their entire sponsorship program and uh, associations, for example. I think the biggest thing they did was affiliated with so many schools in Ottawa-Carlton. And within two years, the 67s were number two in attendance in Canada. And they carried that for a long time. And really only only had a significant slide when they tore down the civic center excuse me and they had to uh go play out of, out of the ctc which was Scotiabank place i think at the time <clears throat> and there was no no civic center so you lost that area there and people were still going but even when they came back to you know td place although they've done okay especially the last couple of years because the team on the ice has been better but at the end of the day jason uh you know jeff hunt um uh has moved on and and uh you know it's 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 ottawa sports entertainment now they're under that umbrella everything's different and you still have a pretty hardcore fan base that go and they're certainly not drawing what they did in their heyday with jeff and certainly they filled the civic center in the 80s when killer was there they had such a good team they memorial cup winners in 84 i was at a lot of those games and uh, they won it in Kitchener, but I mean, prior to leaving for the Memorial Cup and through the 80s, I had a lot of friends on the team, used to go all the time. And the crowds were good. You go back in the 70s, that was a night out for us. We used to go as a family to watch Danny Potman play in 1972, 1971, 72. My two brothers and my parents, and we'd drive in from the Cars Road to go watch the 67s play. There was a couple of times we drove in and we couldn't get a ticket. We couldn't get in. So at different times, they've, they've had their successes. Uh, sure, you know, you'd like to see more people in there on a consistent basis. But uh, like I said, uh, Ottawa's a fickle fan base. They're, they're, not, they're not great sports fans here. They really aren't. It's, that's such a misnomer. They're pretty good football fans. That's probably their number one thing they support. When, when the hockey teams are winning, they're there. They're behind their team's winner tie. Fair. That's a very fair statement. All right, now let's get on to some uh... – oh, actually, before I leave that, do you think that we should be playing an OHL season if we can't have contact? Is there any point? I, I personally would say no, but uh, and I think by the time they drop the puck, there will be contact. I, I believe that. I think by the time they, they're scheduled to start playing, um, which is still another like eight, nine weeks away, I believe, I think they'll, they'll be playing contact. But – they try and do it without is going to be catastrophic as far as I'm concerned. Right. I, I really do feel in my heart when they do drop the puck for real, it'll be contact. 
Yeah, because it's going to affect people's potential careers. There's physical players and there's some that aren't so physical. I mean, when you yeah. take away something from my resume, which I consider to be a strength, and I can't display that for the scouts, I mean, that could have dramatic effects on the amount of money that I signed for, you know, which round I'm going to get picked for in the draft, all that kind of stuff. They're, they're doing it in tier two. Uh, tier two is playing with no contact right now. And, and uh, that's the next layer junior down, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Carlton place Kings, uh, Carlton place Canadians, uh, Pembroke lumber Kings, the P and Raiders that, you know, that, that those groups, they're not playing contact mm-hmm. uh, those teams. So they're junior age players. They're only one notch below. A lot, some of those guys will end up in the NHL. There's always a, a small percentage of them that do. So, but the OHL is a different animal. And um, I just, in my heart of hearts, I don't think we'll see it. But um, I think Lisa McLeod has been, and she's a friend. She's, I've known her a long time and, and uh, I respect her. But it just appears like it's been a little bit of grandstanding, to be honest, the public comments. And then she doubled down on it a couple of weeks later, like, I'm the minister here and I'm calling the shots. Well, let's hold on there. We'll see. Right. So I'm guessing without contact or being a little bit more cautious about contact, that fighting is going to be an absolute, is going to be an absolute no-no. <laughs> like having people's blood and spit going back and forth in a Donnybrook. But I do want to talk about tough guys. When I think about my favorite tough guy, I'm thinking about Bobby Probert. I think by far as as a tough guy, and again, with about one one millionth of a brain for the stats that you have, (laughs) because there's probably some guy that played, you know, 70 years ago that you know that had a better season. But like Bobby Probert had one of the best years for a tough guy, I think, when he was 22 years old. This is a stat line, 29 goals. 33 yeah. assists, and 398 minutes in penalties. That's absolutely absurd. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, uh, just so you know, um, out in the Valley, Westport and Perth have been – this is the first week that they're not playing because the, the one of the schools in Westport, it was a bunch of COVID uh, positive tests, so they decided to cancel the game. But they've been playing this non-contact stuff. And they had a massive line brawl uh, about uh, six weeks ago. Yeah. So believe me, if, if, if you and I are playing against each other and it's non-contact and you give me that stick in the back of the knee or the back of the kidney or liver or something, where there's no padding or cross-check in the back of the neck, you know, we're, we're yeah. probably going. I don't really care what the laws or the rules are or whatever. You know, I mean, you're going to snap. You're a young man in your teens. Anyway. Bobby Prober is my favorite enforcer of all time. I'm right, right there with you on that. And uh, I am so lucky that I got to work with him a number of times. And he was an absolute class act off the ice. I know he had his problems off the ice. That's what led to ultimately probably a lot of his medical conditions. I, I think, you know, the drugs that he had the issues with that ended up seeing him suspended from the NHL and, several uh, rehab stints and all sorts of trouble with the law and all the rest of it. His story's well documented, but as an enforcer and a guy who was not just a pure enforcer, I mean, he played in an all-star game. He played in Stanley cup semifinals. Um, he held the Detroit Red Wing record for most points one playoff year. I mean, he broke Gordy Howe's record for most points one playoff year and he didn't even make a final. So obviously in Bob's day, you could play more playoff games in a year than, than you could in Gordy's day. It was only two rounds. So that said, 
I'm a huge Proby fan, Jason, and uh, God rest his soul. I believe it's 10 years now he's gone, and I, uh, I miss him greatly, and I admired him tremendously. I'll tell you what, there are guys out there, Marty McSorley being probably the most vocal, <clears throat> and uh, others who think that Bob Probert has a case for the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Given the nature of where he took the job, and a guy like Wendell Clark, for example, you touched on his name earlier with Toronto as one of the good players on Toronto, which he was. You know, Wendell fought Proby, I believe, five times. Ty Domi fought him, I think, five times. They love him in hindsight now, obviously, with Bob gone. But Wendell said something to me that I thought was so prophetic. He said, you know, Liam, 15, 16 years after he came in the league, he still was fighting all the toughest guys in the league. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. It's remarkable. Nobody else in hockey history did that. And unfortunately, though, Jason, you're going to run into, uh, you know, the side of the fan who – who, who either has a problem with fighting, it's barbaric, you know, there's a whole percentage now have gone that way. But in my view, and I love it, and I admire it, and I respect it tremendously, he's my guy. I'm with you on that one 100%. Yeah, and so I know that you have the recollection for the numbers and special events. Do you have that same recollection power for the best tilt that you ever saw? Well, if you want to just go back to Proby, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I used to, I was part owner of a sports bar in Ottawa called the original six. That was a hockey bar. Let's be honest. And uh, I was there three and a half years from 88 to 91 <clears throat> late in the calendar year, 91. And at the start of the 1991 season, this rookie for New Jersey came in the league by name of Troy Crowder. <laughs> and the first or second game of the season, they played Detroit and he got the sweater up over Proby's head and he tagged him and he cut him. That's just two things you rarely, rarely ever saw at that time. So I went to the NHL schedule, and I looked through October. When's it, when are they playing again? Through November. Jesus. Through December. When the hell are they playing again? Then I get into January. Through January. January the 28th, 1991, was a Monday night, and we had a satellite dish. There was only two bars in Ottawa. In 1991, that had satellite dishes, us and the Prescott Hotel. And I put up a big poster saying, rematch, Proby and Crowder at the Joe. And we sold tickets. We packed the bar. And Timmy Higgins, who's an Ottawa native who played for the Ottawa 67s, had retired the year before. And he retired. He, he had been Proby's roommate. And he came into the bar that night. We had a little spot. We had the seats. And then a little spot where you could sit like four or five stools. It was the prime viewing area, viewing the big screen. And I sat there and I saved a seat for, for Higgy. And he came in and he sat beside me and he said, Liam, I talked to Proby and he's going to first chance he gets, first chance. <laughs> so I go on the microphone and I announce it and the crowd goes nuts. The crowd goes nuts. So we got the game on. <laughs> There's no fight in the first period. They never had a shift against each other. Oh. I think it was John Conniff, whoever was coaching New Jersey, wouldn't put Crowder out there against Proby. Meanwhile, New Jersey's kicking the snot out of them on the scoreboard. So they go to the first intermission. The whole first intermission on TV, nothing to do with the game. It's, it's the tail of the tape. Their height, their weight, their common opponents. I'm not making this up. Yeah. It's 100% true. And then first shift, 
second period. I can I can hear Mickey Redmond's voice in my mind. Look out, look out, here they go, and the big man is snapping. And they went at it right in front of the Detroit bench, and, and Crowder got off early again. Proby came out of his gear this time, and then he started firing the right hands, and he knocked Crowder down. And the hair in the back of my neck is going up telling you the story right now because that camera panned the crowd. And I used to go around, Jason, when I did hockey trivia around Ottawa, and I would bring a VHS tape and go to the bars and say, play this tape. And I had a bunch of different hockey moments, and I would talk trivia about them. And I would say, tell me which one here, which crowd is a Detroit crowd when they won the Stanley Cup? Which one? And I played one where they won the Cup in 97, and the other one that night when Proby knocked Crowder down. People couldn't tell. The Detroit crowd went ballistic. My bar went ballistic. So to me, I remember tons of fights. But that one is very, very special. Yeah. And it also sounds like maybe that's one of your favorite calls. Who would be the person that when you're listening to a hockey game that just captures what's happening in that moment? Like that big guy that makes the big call that it's almost as big as the play itself. Wow. It was, for me, as one guy, you know, I grew up uh, in the 60s and 70s as Danny Gallivan. I mean, Danny Gallivan and Dick Irvin worked on Hockey Night in Canada for 17 years. They were my duo, you know. And and uh, Dick Irvin is like an uncle to me today. He wrote the forward to my first book. I've written four. He wrote the forward to my first one in 1994. And I, I did his TV show, Hockey Magazine, 14 times. I was on Montreal Canadian radio with him at least 50 times in the 80s. And uh, Dick Irvin on color, a third man in the booth. And Danny Gallivan, play-by-play, is number one for me by far. People say, well, what about Foster Hewitt? Well, Foster came out of retirement to do the Summit Series. And, you know, his heyday was uh, the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and then he gave way to his son, Bill Jr. But I was a Hab fan. So if the Habs weren't on national, then we'd turn it over to the French Channel, and I would, I would get René Lecavalier and Gilles Tremblay. I don't really speak French, but I can understand it pr- pretty good, especially hockey. And we, we watched a ton of French hockey in those days because if the Leafs were on the national, we'd just flip it over to CBOFT and, and watch it in French with Le Cavalier. So Danny Gallivan and Rennie Le Cavalier are my play-by-play guys, by far, bar none. Yeah. Et le boo! That's awesome stuff. So let's dive into you being an author. How did that opportunity present itself? When did that become an interest for you? I started having an idea about writing and putting, putting some hockey questions together in a trivia book. There were trivia books that came out in the 70s written by Stan Fischler and Brian McFarlane. And they were must-gets for me, obviously. And um, then a couple others came out in the 80s. And a lot of them had mistakes. You know, there, was, there used to be mistakes. I used to sit down and get a trivia book from somebody and go through them, find all the mistakes, and then write a, handwrite a letter and send it off to the publisher. And I said, I should do my own book. And uh, so I finally did. And we did a co-publishing venture with what then was called General Store Publishing in the Ottawa Valley. My late father was still alive. And he helped out with some of those preliminary costs. And uh, we published a book in 1994. And we called it Leah McGuire's Hockey Trivia Book One. Because the game plan was I was going to write like maybe 10 of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
you know, I, I, uh, I met a, a young lady named Liz Heaney, and we had a whirlwind romance, and we became the only couple in 71 years, three months, and 17 days to propose at Center Ice to the Montreal Forum. And we got married, and we had two children very quickly. So a second book went out the window until the late 90s when I started uh, getting the urge to do it. And then I was very, very fortunate. Ended up getting a contract with Random House and wrote my second one in 2001, and my third one in 2012, and then uh, my fourth one I just released last year, which is my first non-trivia book. Mm-hmm. I stepped away from the trivia, and I did a life story of a guy who, uh, for anybody who's a hockey fan, knows the movie Slapshot. And in fact, uh, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but I got it right here. You can see it. The real Ogie. And I'm very proud of it. That's the life story of Goldie Goldthorpe, who was uh, the, the impetus for the character Ogie Oglethorpe in the movie Slapshot. And I wrote his life story. And I bill him as the world's most violent athlete. Okay. And maybe you can give us an example of that. You said there's some good stories in there. So give me... Uh, well, I don't even know if I want to say give me the top one because I'd love for people to go out there and get the book and I'll make sure that I have that in the in well, the description. But what's one story that maybe you can share with us that would it maybe define how violent he is and why sure. would you want to pick up this book? Yeah, well, first of all, um, if anybody watches this and wants to know more about it, I have a little video we put together. It's four minutes long. It's to music and it's quite spectacular. And I'll gladly email it or send it to anybody, however you want to get it electronically. You know what, Liam, if you want, I'll put it at the end of this podcast. Okay. Yeah, All right. I'll put it right at the end. Yeah, okay, that'd be fantastic. I'll, I'll send it to you, and it's, uh, it, it's self-explanatory. But just to tell you, um, here's a man who missed two training camps in his prime. One, because he'd been shot by drug dealers. He never <laughs> did drugs in his life. Okay. Never. And he told these guys, he warned these guys to quit selling drugs to kids. And, and then Goldie's ex-girlfriend showed up on his doorstep. He came back from the gym. She was inside, and she had OD'd. And he knew where she was getting the drugs. So he went over there with a buddy, and they went right through the door. You, you want to talk about a scene? I got the story in the book. Just wait till I get this on the big screen. I'm working on the screenplay right now. I'm going to turn this into a movie. Yeah. This is going to be um, – you know, uh, an un, un, unbelievable, unbelievable movie. Anyway, he goes right through the door. He's kicking the snot out of every drug dealer. There's about eight of them in there. He's dropping every one of them. And they pull a gun and shoot him, try to kill him. And he, he missed training camp because he was recovering from gunshot wounds. A couple years later, he's coming out of a bar again with a buddy. They had worked out. It was a Navy SEAL. He's working out with a Navy SEAL in San Diego. Goldie's playing hockey down in the States. He sees a commotion in a van. People are standing around. He goes over there. He peers in. There's this guy, crazy, crazy looking guy. And he's got a woman who's basically unconscious. And he's repeatedly punching her in the head. <clears throat> no one's doing a thing. So Goldie rips the, the side door open and pulls the guy out and starts feeding him. And tells his buddy to go and phone the police. So he's got the guy down. And he's feeding them, and the woman comes staggering out of the van, covered in blood, and goes over and tries to kick the guy in the head as he's on the ground, ends up falling into Goldie, and knocks Goldie off the guy. The guy goes a few feet to his van, and Jason (coughs) comes back with a buck knife like this, and starts stabbing Goldie repeatedly. 
So he ended up grabbing the knife with his bare hand oh my God. and knocking the guy out again. He took so many stitches up and down his left side, they had to call in a special surgeon to sew him up. That guy ends up getting in his van, drives away. They called San Diego SWAT. They got him on the beach hours later. He was an ex-con. He was on PCP, and, and he tried to kill Goldie, and he was killing that woman. There's just two stories of off the ice with this right. guy. You tell me when you've ever heard of anybody in sports history missing training camps in their prime because they'd been shot and they'd been stabbed. Right. If you didn't tell me that this was like a hockey player, if we didn't preface this, I would think we're talking about a Marvel movie. Like this was a superhero. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's crazy shit. <laughs> that's so oh, crazy. I, I'm not kidding you. This guy lived by the Old West Code. I won't be wrong. I won't have my name insulted. I won't be laid a hand upon. I don't do these things to other men, so I require the same of them. And you cannot touch a woman or a child or an animal around this guy. Or if you're a bully and, and, and you're looking for somebody to be your huckleberry, you got the right guy. Because right. he isn't going to go over and say, please stop that. He isn't going to go over and say, uh, security. He isn't going to go over and say, ma'am or sir or whatever, maybe we should call the police. No, no, he is the law. Right. And he's taking it into his own hand. And he's done it so aggressively. That's why he's gotten in so much trouble. Because by the time the police show up, and then they got to call the ambulances to take all the bodies away. Goldie has been charged time and time and time and time again for assaults. With right. weapons? No. Never. Just these. Just these. Knuckle up. Knuckle up. <laughs> all right. Now, you're obviously a person that doesn't hold back. And this wasn't a question that I had planned on asking, but I think it's a good one to close on. And I'm not sure how close people like yourself are with others that stand out in media in regards to what they do and how they speak on hockey. And obviously a lot of people know the name Don Cherry when it comes to sports and he's kind of been unceremoniously dismissed and he's doing his own thing now. But in regards to Don Cherry and the way that he is, I personally you know, maybe I'll just keep my own opinion out of it, but I think he should still be on TV, maybe doing his own thing. Uh, I, I think that maybe his comments were taken a little bit out of context. But I also think that there have been things that he said over the years that kind of maybe served as precursors to where it allowed the, the very... Uh, the, <laughs> the cancel society just to, to want him out. As you can tell, I'm trying to be very careful just myself. I want, I don't want to offend anybody, but maybe you will speak a lot I'll louder on this. But yeah, you take over. I kind of set it up. You knock her down. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Grapes is a very dear friend of mine and has been for almost 40 years. Uh, I used to have dinner with him and his, his late wife, Rose. I've, I've met Tim. I've met Cindy. I thank the world of every one of them. Uh, he did Coach's Corner for 34 years. And, uh, you know, he made a mistake. Uh, what, what, what he said, he, he said in error. It should never have been said the way he said it. Unfortunately, it did give the cancel culture, which has really sprung its ugly head in the last couple of years, predominantly, a real opportunity to step forth. 
And as a result, he, he lost his gig. I think this was going to be his last year or last year was going to be his last season anyway, to be perfectly honest. Uh, in February, he will be 80, 80, 87. He'll be 87 years old on February 5th. <laughs> like, what was he going to do? Coach his corner at 90? I mean, maybe he could have. Yeah. But um, that, notwithstanding that, look, he is what he is. And it's been polarizing for years. But clearly, the, his popularity resonated with countless millions, the majority of hockey fans, as we well know. He was voted one of the top 10 Canadians, I believe number seven of all time. The, the, the success of Coach's Corner, the spinoffs from it, his own personal success from it. Not only that, I, 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 think he's a, I, I think he's a great analyst. I think the guy still has a feel for the game. He, he goes to, to midget games and Bantam games. He still watches hockey. He was coach of the year. He was the fastest coach to 200 wins in NHL history. He's a Jack Adams winner. He coached the Stanley Cup final. He played 16 years in the minors. He won seven championships. I mean, anybody trying to discredit him from a hockey point of view is a moron and an idiot and just has an agenda. It's as simple as that. In terms of what happened, and here's where everybody makes a mistake. Everybody focuses on the two words, you people. That's not what got him in trouble. It's the rest of it. He said, you people who come here. It's not because he said you people. He has said you people nine billion times since, since he started doing Coach's Corner in the 80s. You people who come here. He had already made a bit of a leap to talking or re referencing to non-Canadians on that fateful November night, November 9th and last year. And then he said he finished it. And what happened was it was right at the end of the bit. They were already over. Ron McLean had the earpiece in, just as you do right now. And I believe he was being told by the truck, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap, wrap it up. I don't think he ever heard it. He didn't hear it till after, till the big kerfuffle came after. And the, and the, and the phone lines at Rogers and CBC, there were so many calls and messages end up blocking it. We all know the story from there. But that's, that's what happened. And then, you know, as we know now, uh, Grapes was offered an opportunity to, uh, to apologize in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and he chose not, not to take it. And as a result, they let him go on, of all days, Remembrance Day in, uh, in 2019. And, and that was the patriot. end. Of, as yeah, you said. a patriot. Very unceremoniously. But, yeah, I mean, to me, he's one of the greatest Canadians ever. I, I have nothing but respect for the man. Is, is some of his comments have, have, have a, a bigotry overtone to them over the years. I know for a fact that some of the Finnish and Swedish stuff he did for fun almost. It was before trolling was a word, he was trolling, you know, right. on Hockey Night in Canada and with great success. After Rose passed away, you know, Grapes remarried. He married a woman from Sweden. So I don't think he hated all Swedes, you know. Right. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, no, I've got nothing but respect for the man and his family. And I... I think the funny thing about it, Jason, finish up on that sense, at least in respect to grapes, whether you want to go down another road or not, I don't know. But I mean, respect to grapes is uh, the, the people, the ratings absolutely plummeted on hockey night in Canada after that's a fact. I'm not making that up. You know, anybody can look that up. It's public knowledge. So the cancel culture, they were not, they're not the ones watching hockey. It just gave them an opportunity to get up on their high horse, you know, <coughs> up on their, up on their ladder 
and scream to the world, get him out of there. So many people have wanted him gone for years. Like he out, he outlasted four or five executive producers of Hockey Night in Canada. He had a lot of power and he made a lot of money. And his videos have made a lot of money. Believe me, there's no tag days for Don Cherry. Yeah. And like, it's going to be 87 in February. God love him. We should be so lucky to get there age-wise. And uh, I, I've always enjoyed – I've worked with him many times. I've done radio with him. I've done a couple – I did some TV commercials with him back in the day in the late 80s. And I consider him, I consider him a friend. And, and uh, I think the world of him. And if people dislike me because I'm a Don Cherry fan or friend or supporter of – you know, go after yourself. <laughs> I think I want to end right there. I don't know. That's such a good ending. <laughs> but I think I'll, I'll ask you one more. <laughs> I'll ask you one more. What is the question that you probably get asked the most? Because there's always the superstar and music, whatever it might be, and they always get asked to play the same song. They get sick of it. There must be one question that you're just tired of hearing. Well, I'm never like goes back to your first comment to me. I, I never get tired. Never. never. So, I'm very lucky that way, Jason. I right. think I'm wired. As you can tell, I'm wired. I'm <laughs> wired on life. I'm having a pint right now. I'm going to have a lot more later. But I'm just a very sort of hyper, very excited guy all the time anyway. I'm a very positive guy, extremely positive guy. And so I'd have never minded anybody coming up to me, even asking this question that I've been asked more than any other in 39 years of doing trivia for money and 46 years of doing it when I've studied for the purpose of memorization, the question I've been asked above all else is the fastest three goals. And I get asked that still, you know, it comes up still uh, in, in, a, in a regular basis. And it's such a great story. You know, Bill Mosienko at the end of the regular season in 1952 the first NHL guide and record books were called the Jim Hendy. That was the name, the man who produced them. So they're called the Hendy Guides, Jim Hendy. They started coming out in 47. So Bill Mosey-Ankle's playing for the Chicago Blackhawks. They're going to miss the playoffs. And they're playing a game in New York against the Rangers, who are also going to miss the playoffs. This is a six-team league. <laughs> they're the only two teams that are missing. And it's the last game of the regular season, March 23rd, 1952. So the night before, as they're taking the train from Chicago to New York, Mosey Ankle's looking through the book, and he's going, God, I'd love to get my name in there somehow, sometime, you know, because he'd been in the NHL at that point nine years. He was from Winnipeg. His nickname was Wee Willie. He played on the pony line with Max and Doug Bentley in his heyday. So it's 1952. They go on the ice. They're playing the Rangers, and they're getting pumped. Like, both teams are missing the playoffs. The Rangers – don't even dress their starting goalie, who was Gump Worsley. They put in this rookie who not only was he a rookie, he had already played that afternoon. He played in New York for their farm team. Now they're dressing him that night in the NHL against Chicago, and the Rangers are pumping the Hawks. His name was Lauren Anderson. And you know the interesting thing about that, Jason? He was from Renfrew, Ontario. You must have been in the Frew at some point in time. Yes, right? absolutely. Lady, lady, disco, baby. Hey, <laughs> all the way, man. So <laughs> he was from Renfrew. He's in the NHL. I think it's his fourth game. He never played again. Then, in the third period, produced one of the greatest quotes in the history of sports. When Bill Mosienko, as he said post game, I caught lightning in a bottle. 
and he scored three goals in 21 seconds at the 609, 620, and 630 mark. He came down next shift and hit the post. He could have had four <laughs> in, th- in 25 seconds. He went around the same defenseman every time, a rookie defenseman on New York named High Buller. They end up tying the game. Chicago wins the game on a late goal by a man named Sid Finney, who was from the south of Ireland, where my father was from. Wow. Chicago won the game 7-6. The goal judge at that end was Arthur Reichardt for all of Mosienko's goals. All three goals were assisted by Gus Bodner. So Mosienko had the fastest three goals. Bodner had the fastest three assists. And the other winger was George G. And he got two assists on the play. And uh, the other, other interesting tie into Mosienko's career is his very first game for Chicago in the NHL nine years earlier. He scored two goals in his very first game. You know how long it took him to score those two goals? 21 seconds. Oh, that's nuts. How's that night? So he won his name in the record book. He got it. And I get asked that question all the time. Well, maybe you won't get it asked as much now that we're putting it on a podcast. (laughs) We'll see. Thank you so much for all your time. Like, this is amazing. And I'd, I'd love to have you back on the show again. I'm going to make sure to put that clip on the end of the video. I'm going to make sure to have some links in the description. And anything that you want to know about Mr. Liam McGuire, it will be there for your viewing and clicking pleasure. So thank you very much for your time. Great to be here with you, Jason. Thanks, brother. Cheers, man. Yes, cheers to you as well. And big shout out to my title sponsor, Gallant Media, for all your website, graphic design, print materials, and custom Christmas gifts or whatever it might be. You take care, be well, and love simply because you can.